Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiani Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 16th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. <coughs> In my daily conversation and social media activities, I frequently encounter situations which remind me the fact that many old-time Christian identity people do not like me, and they do not like Clifton. They do not like Clifton Emmerheiser, and for that reason, they do not communicate with me, and they actually shun our work. This is true, of course, of all those who deny two seed line and the racial message of the scriptures. But sadly, to me, it is also true of many who do not understand the, who do understand the issue of race in the context of scripture, who do accept to seed line, but who would rather cling to the personalities of the past rather than examine and refine or correct their errors. They would rather cling to Ma Swift or Ma Compare and remain in their errors. And that is actually a more subtle form of idolatry. When you put a man on a pedestal and he cannot be corrected or you can't imagine that he was wrong about something. So they despise us for daring to challenge their old-time British Israel or Christian identity dogma rather than study and consider what we have written. But in the spot, in spite of the contention and the obstacles, our ministry grows each year. We praise Yahweh for that. We pray that we remain on this course. We are not going to succumb to any desire for popularity, but rather we hope to get more and more of our brethren to understand this message in the face of adversity. So here is yet another critique of Bertrand Compare. We do not do this to tear down one of our own teachers but to show our appreciation for him, while at the same time seeking to improve on his work, correcting things which must be corrected, and, if we can, edifying places where he had left room for edification. We are all men, and all of us have room for improvement, or mistakes that may be corrected now or in the future. This printing of Compare's sermon was transcribed and edited by Clifton Emmerheiser, and therefore we shall also include Clifton's critical notes in this presentation this evening. And in respect to this particular sermon, Clifton only had one lengthy note that we're actually going to break into two pieces. <coughs> Who is your God? by Bertrand Compare. The whole Bible is the record of the age-long war between our God, Yahweh, and the rebel, Satan, which is being carried on between their children. Are you surprised, Compare asks, are you surprised that I speak of both Yahweh and Satan as having children? I am not saying this as a figure of speech. I mean that both of them have literal children living in the world today who are respectively the leaders of the human forces on the side of good and those on the side of evil. The theme of the entire Bible is stated in Genesis 
spoken to Yahweh, I'm sorry, spoken by Yahweh to Satan. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall crush thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The same Hebrew word, Zerah, meaning seed or children, is used in both instances. Satan was to have just as literal children as Eve. Yahweh said that he would put enmity between Satan's children and Eve's children. It has been true throughout all the centuries since then, and it is true today. Luke 3 verse 38 tells us that Adam was the son of Yahweh. So Eve's children by Adam were therefore the children or descendants of Yahweh. Can anyone be so completely blind as not to see this war is being carried on today between the children and uh, the children of Satan and the children of Yahweh? All of you are wondering when atomic bombs will be dropped on us by the children of Satan. And of course this was probably the 1960s or perhaps 1970s. And I remember being in Catholic Grammar School in the 1960s on Tours Avenue in Jersey City, St. Aidan's School. And every so often we would hear an alarm go off and we were all told to crawl under our flimsy little wooden desks and stay there for the duration of the alarm as if that would save us from the inevitable Russian missile attack. It was considered inevitable at that time, of course, by all of the suckers who worship the government as their god. All of this that Compre has told us is true and good, but there is more to the story than this alone, and it is difficult to summarize in just a few words. But when Compre makes statements such as this, people get the wrong impression that there are two races at odds with one another and here's the important port, the important portion, that there are two races at odds with one another within the general population of the rest of the world. So they imagine, as Compare also sometimes did, that there are other neutral races of so-called people here, who were created by Yahweh and who were some, or are somehow good. Nothing is further from the truth, and we have proven in the past, for example, in a July 2014 presentation titled Christian Identity Directions, Doctrines, Dogmas, and Agendas, that Compare himself was divided on this matter, and so was Wesley Swift. <coughs> but one cannot understand Genesis from the text of Genesis alone. As Christ had come to other things which had been secret, had been kept secret from the foundation of the world, which he himself informs us in Matthew chapter 13. If there are things which had been kept secret from the foundation of the world or the society, from the time when the book of Genesis, when Moses was inspired by Yahweh to write it, then the book of Genesis cannot possibly be complete. 
So don't think you could read Genesis and understand Genesis and understand the beginning. We need the further revelation of Christ who uttered things which had been kept secret from the foundation of the world to really have further understanding and sufficient understanding into Genesis. Compare himself had said in his sermon titled Adam was not the first man that upon being sent away Cain found many other people for Genesis 4.17 records that Cain not only married a wife but built a city. You don't build a city for just two people. These were the pre-Adamic races mentioned in the later part of Genesis chapter 2. And with this we wholeheartedly disagree. There were races before Adam. Races here on earth before Adam. That doesn't mean that Yahweh necessarily created them. Other races are not mentioned at the end of Genesis chapter 2. The passages to which Compare refers are actually an antithesis to the sin of the fallen angels which is described in the original book of Enoch which was to mix their seed with that of the animals. If we had the entire Bible, if we had the entire word of God from antiquity I should say, then perhaps you would better understand what's going on in Genesis chapter 2. It's an antithesis to the sin of the fallen angels who did marry animals in a sense who did mix their seed with beasts and create giants and monsters as Enoch tells us and the spirits of bastards Yahshua Christ informs us in the revelation as to that old serpent who was the representative, even the head, of an entire third of the angels of God, who were cast out into, into the earth. We would contend that all of these others, who corrupted both themselves and the creation of God, were the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which that old serpent represented in Genesis chapter 3. Then, where we read of the return of Christ at the end of the age, in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. We should understand that only Adamic Israelites are sheep, and all other nations and peoples are goats. If you don't fall into the sheep category, and Christ is gathering all the ethnos, all the ethnoi, plural, all the nations, all the people groups, and putting everyone who isn't a sheep into the goat category, then there's only sheep and goats. So we have Adamic Israelite sheep, the sheep of Yahweh's pasture, are the children of Israel, and everybody else is a goat. The promise to Abraham being long ago fulfilled, by the time of Christ it was fulfilled. His seed inherited the old Adamic world, and that is the prevalent ancestry of the whites of today, who are, for the most part, from the dispersed children of Israel who had come to dominate the world, the world of the Adamic race, in ancient times. The Romans, the Parthians, the Scythians, the Phoenicians. All of the other races are mixed. They do not have an origin in Genesis. And therefore, as Christ explains in that same parable, they share the same fate 
these goat nations. They share the same fate as the devil and his angels. Their fate betrays their origin, that they are all branches from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Christ exclaimed that every plant which my heavenly Father had not planted shall be rooted up. So there is a greater struggle and an older struggle than the enmity of Genesis 3.15 in the rebellion of the devil and his angels against Yahweh which is described in Revelation chapter 12. And that is why a tree of the knowledge of good and evil as well as a tree of life are found in Genesis chapter 2 without further explanation of their origin or explicit mention of their creation. The Adamic race which Yahweh created is that tree of life of which he himself is root and branch. And all of the other races which Yahweh did not create are corruptions of his creation perpetrated by the devil and his angels. For that reason they all share the same fate in the end being cast into the lake of fire. That is also why the ultimate purpose of Christ is not to condemn the race of Adam, as Paul of Tarsus said, as in Adam all died, in Christ all, all of the Adamic race shall be made alive. Rather, the, the ultimate purpose of Christ was that he might destroy the works of the devil, as the Apostle John explains in his first epistle. Continuing with Compare. We shall have some further but minor disagreement, which we shall explain as we proceed. <clears throat> With this we will split the only critical note which Clifton had made for this sermon into two parts, as each part corresponds to Compare's next two paragraphs. Satan was once an angel of very high rank, with great authority. Evidently, and this part is good because I wholeheartedly agree with it, evidently he was then the governor of this planet Earth. Possibly much more also. Now that part I really don't agree with, but that's fine. Then he rebelled against Yahweh and was cast out of heaven and confined to this Earth. We read about this, not really, but we read about this according to Compare, in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. And Compre will quote these verses. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of Yahweh. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shall be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Compare then goes on to quote Revelation chapter 12 verses 7 through 9 which state, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That ancient serpent called the devil and Satan which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him.
And then we see Luke chapter 10 verse 18. Yahshua says, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now we have a critical, half of a critical note by Clifton Emmeheiser. Early in his presentation, Compare quoted Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 through 15. This critical note by Clifton was actually at the very end of his typed version of the presentation. Compare quoted Isaiah 14 verses 12 through 15 thusly, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of Yahweh. Now if we read the song of Deborah and other allegories found in Genesis and the Old Testament, the stars of Yahweh are the children of Israel. So here we have the king of Babylon planning to exalt his throne above all of the children of Israel. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Clifton says, Many will contend that this passage is referring instead to the king of Babylon. To the, I'm sorry, to the king of Babylon. I'm babbling Babylon, right? Which is true, however. Here Satan, with his agenda is compared to the king of Babylon. And this passage is referring to the king of Babylon. And we think Clifton almost got it right. He should have just reversed it. The king of Babylon is being compared to Satan. As for the term Lucifer, which is from the Latin words for light bearer, they apply here to the king of Babylon and are being used in Isaiah in a mocking sense. The ancient Hittite and Egyptian kings called themselves by titles such as the sun on earth, believing for themselves to be the true light bearers and lawgivers of their worlds, of their respective empires. <clears throat> ancient kings also imagined for themselves to be gods, and incarnations of gods. Many of them also had in common the symbol of the serpent as the symbol of rulership. That's true in Assyria. It's true among the Hittites. It's true in Egypt. So we can also say it's true in Persia, where it was a griffin, I believe. So we can also see the nature of rebellion against Yahweh in that. The ancient pagan kings had elements of the truth, but they all wanted to exalt themselves to a position which belongs exclusively to Yahweh our God. So we see in many of the ancient pagan religions that the supreme deity was also the sun god. In the New Testament, Christ claims this position for himself as the light come into the world and the bright and morning star. Compare did well here to note concerning the Satan, the leader of the angels which sinned that are described in Revelation chapter 12, that evidently he was then the governor of this planet earth. We do not believe that Satan and his angels were cast out of the sky, 
but that rather the heaven which they were expelled from was indeed a pre-Adamic and godly society. However, the passage he cites from Isaiah chapter 14 is a direct address to the king of Babylon even before the king of Babylon became lord of the Adamic world, which did not happen for perhaps 120 years after Isaiah wrote. When Isaiah was writing, the king of Nineveh controlled the entire world, the king of Assyria. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Compare had quoted only as far as verse 15. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 15. But after that we read from verse 16. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? So we see in Isaiah 14, Yahweh is addressing a man, and not some spirit Satan in heaven, or some ancient fallen angel. Clifton did a little better to acknowledge that this is a comparison to the king of Babylon, but neither is that quite right. Here Yahweh addresses the king of Babylon himself, but it is evident from the language employed that the address to the king of Babylon is a type or a shadow suggesting to us some of the aspects of that original rebellion of the fallen angels. So we can say that this may be a comparison of the king of Babylon to Satan, which is basically what a type is, an allegorical resemblance of one person or event to the representation or nature of another person or event. But we must not fall into the trap that Isaiah chapter 14 is speaking directly to Satan. When it is speaking explicitly to the king of Babylon. And many other kings have fit the same description both before and after this one. To this we can also compare the lamentation of the prince of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 28. So continuing with Compare, he says, however, some of Satan's power seems to have been left to him for a period of time. Yahshua speaks of Satan three different times as the prince of this world order in John chapters 12, 14, 16 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The Apostle Paul also speaks of Satan saying, The God of this age has blinded the minds of them that believe not. Still rebels, although now earthbound, Satan and his angels wanted men to worship them as gods. Many of the pagan gods of Asia and Africa can clearly be traced to and identified as devils. Satan and his rebel followers. The Bible also refers to this fact in Leviticus chapter 17. In verse 7, and they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils, 
after whom they have gone a-whoring. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 17 states, They sacrificed unto devils, not to Yahweh, to gods whom they knew not. Again in Second Chronicles chapter 11 verse 15, And Jeroboam ordained him priests for the high places, and for the devils, and for the calves which he had made. In the New Testament, Paul warns against this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, saying, But I say that the things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to Yahweh. And I would not that ye have fellowship with devils. Now continuing the critical note by Clifton Emmeheiser, Clifton says, We must remember Daniel's prophecy that the Babylonian system would pass seven times over the stump at Daniel chapter 4 verse 16 and Clifton quotes let his heart be changed from a man's and let a beast's heart be given unto him that probably happened when Babylonia was overrun with aliens and they all race mixed and let seven times pass over him a Bible time equals 360 calendar years. Here seven times represent 2,520 calendar years, which brings us up to our present time. Satan's Babylon agenda is financial, political, religious, and racial in nature, and we are witnessing it coming to an apex. Before one concludes that Isaiah is speaking only of the king of Babylon, there is need to examine Christ's description of Satan at Luke chapter 10 verse 18. Is this, is not this Lucifer? And Clifton makes a parenthetical remark and says that Lucifer is Latin for morning star, but actually it's Latin for light bearer. The counterfeit day star Compared to the true Christ, for instance in Second Peter one nineteen, where Peter refers to the to Christ as the day star which may arise in the hearts of his readers. Clifton says truly we are living in a day when ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the world's population is following and worshipping the agenda of the counterfeit day star, Satan. Now, as we have said, the words in Isaiah are explicitly descriptive of the king of Babylon, but they are also an allegory for the fall of the angels and the nature of the original rebellion. So in that sense, the king of Babylon is a type for the prehistoric Satan. That is fully evident. Clifton did well to describe Mystery Babylon in the context of the power of Satan on earth, and where Compare said that the war between Yahweh and Satan is being executed through each of their collective descendants, that is also true. But the other non-white races are the goat nations, and they are the flood from the mouth of the serpent, who also originated in a rebellion against Yahweh, or they couldn't be described as the flood from the mouth of the serpent. Mystery Babylon is connected to world trade in Re Revelation chapter 18, to globalism, and the Jews have forever been the leading international merchants of the world.
Compré also did well to describe the pagan religions as the worship of devils, and Paul of Tarsus even described it as the worship of angels, where he ostensibly meant fallen angels in Colossians chapter 2. But we can also see in scripture that the other races not only worship devils, they were the children of devils. As Malachi said in relation to Judah's Canaanite wife, she was the daughter of a strange god and not a child of Yahweh. These other races worship devils because they are the children of devils. As Yahweh said, if God were your father, you would worship me. Well, their fathers are devils, so they worship devils. Why is that so hard to see? Proceeding with Compare, he slowly progresses towards the subject of his sermon. All of this is just peripheral. Proceeding with Compare, he slowly progresses towards the subject of his sermon. Remember, our religion was crystallized in a form we now have in the Bible at the time when the children of Israel were in the Exodus, on their way to their new home in the Promised Land. They were about to move into a land where they would be surrounded by devil-worshipping pagans. That's where they came from anyway, from Egypt. There was great danger they would gradually absorb the customs of the pagans around them and would learn to call the pagan idols gods and be led into idol worship. To avoid this, Yahweh repeatedly gave the children of Israel stern warnings against such integration with the pagans, forbidding even the mention of the names of the pagan gods. And we must understand that to accept non-white people, we accept their gods, whether we do it explicitly or not. And to accept their gods, we accept their people. Compare says in Exodus 23.15 we read, And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. In Joshua 23.7 Israel was told, Come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them. In Psalms chapter 16, King David's words are so well expressed in Smith and Goodspeed's translation of the Bible. As to the gods who are in the land, and the lofty ones, I have no pleasure in them. Their images are many, others praise them, but I will not pour out their libations of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Anyone, whether man or God, is identified by his name. If I wanted to recommend to you an especially skillful doctor, how could I do it if I didn't know his name? If I told you the wrong name, I would certainly be sending you astray, for you would go to the man that bore that name. It was necessary that the pagan gods be forgotten. No worship was given was to be given to them. Any worship in their names was necessarily to them. It is clearly important that we know the true name of our God. It has been important to Satan to keep us in ignorance of it. 
For 2,500 years, Satan has largely succeeded in keeping us ignorant of the name of our God. It would surprise you to find to whom you have been addressing your prayers these many years. Of course, you meant well, and in your heart, you understood that you were praying to the one true God. But the great probability is that you said something else, as we shall see. And I am certain that where Compare says, Satan, in this in these passages, he's not referring to the original author of the rebellion against God, which we see described in Revelation chapter 12, and equated to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. I believe he's speaking collectively of Satan's descendants. Collectively, they are Satan. Compare, in his sermons, usually used the titles God and Lord, as we can easily tell by listening to the recordings. Ostensibly, he did this so as to reach Christians who had not yet heard the identity message. To this day, sometimes it is necessary to use those titles as we deal with worldly people. However, nothing is more important for us to know that our God is Yahweh, the same God as the Old Testament God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that Jesus, or Yahshua Christ, is that same God, Yahweh, incarnate in the body of a man. There are many nationalist Christians, I speak mostly of the V.S. Herald crowd, what a clown he is. There are many nationalist Christians who despise us for using anglicized versions of these original Hebrew names. They should be ashamed of themselves. If the Greek translators took the Hebrew tetragrammaton and rendered it as Kyrios or Lord, then it is entirely fitting for us to read Kyrios and render it in English with an anglicized representation of the tetragrammaton, which is Yahweh. And no man can say that this is wrong. Indeed, it is the scoffers who are wrong. The tetragrammaton is attested in the Greek versions of the Dead Sea Scrolls as well as the Hebrew and in ancient inscriptions predating the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. There is no doubt the tetragrammaton stood for the name of God, stood for Yahweh. Continuing with Compare, in Exodus chapter 3, you will remember that after Moses had fled from Egypt, Yahweh met him later in a desert, where Yahweh spoke to Moses out of the bush which burned with, with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Yahweh told Moses that he had seen the affliction of the people of Israel in Egypt, and knew their sorrows. So he would deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and bring them into a land of their own. Then he told Moses, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bringeth forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
But Moses knew what kind of character this Pharaoh was. And he also knew that the children of Israel had grown bitter and skeptical under their afflictions and might not believe Moses when he told them that he had come to lead them out of Egypt. They knew well, they knew well enough that no man had power enough of his own to successfully take from Pharaoh's army a group of unarmed slaves, untrained and undisciplined for war. No, this could only be done with the power of God. But which God? They lived among the Egyptians who worshipped many gods. And if it were one of these, would an Egyptian god help them against the Egyptians who built the temples and furnished his priests? How was Moses to rally the people behind him so that they would believe him and follow him when he led the way out of Egypt? So we read in Exodus chapter 3 verse 13, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? This is a very important question indeed. When people refer when people in the world refer to God, those who hear them may indeed picture some strange God in their own minds, especially in our present multiracial society. For instance, when, when, when you, perhaps you work with a sand nigger, you, you work with some Arab, and he's a Muslim, his Allah is not the God of the Bible. His Allah is a totally contrary, distinct and contrary personality to the God of the Bible. You might be tricked into thinking that it's just the same God by a different name. That's bullshit. When you actually read that these rules in the Quran that Allah, that the pedophile lays down, the pedophile pervert, and you read the law of Yahweh, you'll find that these two quote-unquote gods are directly opposed to one another. They're not the same God. But if you just make a reference to God in the workplace, the Sandnager is going to think that you're talking about his God, or that you're agreeing with his God. That's the danger of worshipping some god by the generic title of God. Because the nigger, the chink, the prairie nigger, the sand nigger, the squat monster, they're all going to agree with you, but none of them have the same God. When we refer to Yahweh, we refer explicitly to the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian Bible, the Creator God, and the Heavenly Father of our race in our scriptures. And there can be no confusion. And more importantly, neither can there be any silent acceptance of some alien idol hidden behind a generic reference to a generic God. 
as Christians, we can have no agreement with whatever it is that those aliens consider as God. We can have no agreement. We don't worship God. We worship our God, who is Yahweh. We don't worship the Lord. We worship our Lord, who is Yahweh. Continuing with Compare. Yahweh told Moses to tell them who had sent him. But you can't. You can't find out who it was in your King James Bible. Because the ancient records had been corrupted by the Jewish scribes. And the translators of the King James Bible didn't know it. However, some of the modern English translations give it correctly. Smith and Goodspeed's American Translation and Rotherham's Emphasized Bible are correct. Genesis, Exodus, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3 verses 3 through 15 is curiously garbled in the King James Bible. And Compare reads it. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Moreover, God said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. And Compare says, however, this actually concealed the name of Yahweh. And actually, let me say that the Tetragrammaton does appear in the Hebrew manuscripts. But the King James translators followed the teachings of the Jews who claim that it is unlawful to use the name. Of course, the name is anathema to the Jews. But the name of Yahweh our God should never be anathema to Christians. Yahweh is the God of white Europeans and he is the eternal enemy of the Jews. Continuing again with Compare, he says, now let's read it correctly, translated in Rotherham's translation. And Compare quotes the same passage from Rotherham. And Moses said unto God, Lo, as surely as I go into the sons of Israel and say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, so surely will they say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I will become whatever I please. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name to times age abiding, and this is my memorial to generation after generation. Here the name of Yahweh is given for the first time. 
Note how correct translation clears this up. The meaningless I am what I am becomes I will become whatever I please, which is literally I will become what I will become. I will become the redeemer of my people and the savior of all who come to me as such. I will become the Lamb of God on the cross of Calvary and the King of Kings when I come again. As for where Compare says, here the name of Yahweh is given for the first time. That is true. It's the first time it's given to the Hebrews. It wasn't given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That doesn't necessarily preclude the idea that the name existed and was known to people in history before that time. But Abraham's entire family had turned to paganism. That's very clear in the book of Joshua, where it's explicitly stated. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not aware of the name of Yahweh. And it was given to Moses for the first time in the history of the Hebrews. Moses went and used it when he wrote the earlier Genesis accounts. He didn't use it in the first creation scroll in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through Genesis chapter 2 verse 3, but he used it in the subsequent scrolls, which are all confounded by critics of the original manuscripts, of the original texts, and that confounding is just Jewish confusion, because there should be no confusion at all. I can't wait to do a Genesis commentary in a couple of years, Yahweh willing. Compare is making examples here of some of the things which Yahweh would be which Yahweh would become the redeemer of my people, the savior of all who come to me as such, of course of all his people who come to me as such. I will become the Lamb of God on the cross of Calvary and the King of Kings when I come again. Others include the pillar of smoke, the pillar of fire, the rock in the desert, that was Christ, that was Yahweh, and Yahshua Christ himself. So Compare continues. The personal name of God, Yahweh, is revealed for the first time, I would qualify that by saying, for the first time to the Hebrew patriarchs. For in Genesis chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, as correctly, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Correctly translated by Rotherham, we read, And God spoke unto Moses and said unto him, I am Yahweh. I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob as God Almighty, or El Elyon, although by my name Yahweh I was not made known to them. Yahweh was very insistent that his people should know his name, and that they should know who it was they worshipped as their God. But his name has been consistently edited out of the Bible, so that the people should not know it. Let us read some of these passages, putting his name back into them, where the scribes and translators have falsified the book by taking his name out of it.
Isaiah chapter 52 verse 5 says, Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh? And my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. And that name was Yahshua, or Yahweh saves, or Yahweh savior, or Yahweh is salvation. It's interpreted in various ways. Ezekiel 39.7 states, So will I make known my holy name in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more, and the heathen shall know, or I would say, I would translate, and the nation shall know, that I am Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. The heathen don't matter. The word is goyim, or nations. The nations of Israel. In the original Hebrew, this personal name of Yahweh is used 5,410 times in the Old Testament. Yet, the King James Bible never uses it and uses the corrupted substitute of Jehovah only four times. Yahweh was most insistent that his people should know his name for the good reason that they should know whom to worship. For example, read Leviticus chapters 19 and 20, where every commandment given is emphasized by the statement of authority on which it is given, I am Yahweh your God. There was also a rarely used shorter form, Yah. That's actually a commonly used shorter form when it's compounded with other words to create names in Hebrew, like Jeremiah. But it was rarely used by itself in poems and in the literature. There was also a rarely used shorter form, Yah. For example, Psalm 68.4 Sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rides upon the heavens by his name, Yah and rejoice before him. And there the King James Version has Yah with a J, J-A-H. We would also assert that Yahweh as a name is also a title, as every Hebrew name is really a title with a meaning of its own. The ever-existing one, the ever-living one, however you want to interpret Yahweh, within those limits, within the confines of its basic meaning. Yet Yahweh was indeed a title used by God himself as his own personal name. So we can't write simply the ever-existing one. When we write... um Jeremiah, I, I think, I forget exactly what that means. Maybe it means he who hears Yahweh or something like that. When we write Jeremiah in English, we don't translate it. And he who hears Yahweh left Jerusalem and went to Bethel. That, that makes no sense at all. We write Jeremiah because it's a name. So when we write Yahweh in English, we shouldn't write 
the ever-living one, we should write Yahweh. Yahweh was indeed a title used by God himself as his own personal name. We can also be confident that the name should be pronounced as Yahweh, at least approximately, because of the manner in which it was described by Flavius Josephus and others in early times. This we have in a paper at Christagenia, which was compiled by Clifton Emmerheiser, which is titled, Which Is It, Lord or Yahweh? It's compiled by Clifton from an old copy of Encyclopedia Britannica, put together with a conclusion which I wrote for Clifton. The Jews had restricted the use of the name Yahweh sometime before the birth of Christ. Flavius Josephus, speaking of the very incident where the name of Yahweh was revealed to Moses, said this in Antiquities in Book 2 from line 275. He said, Moses, having now seen and heard these wonders that assured him of the truth of these promises of God, had no room left to disbelieve them. He entreated him to grant him that power when he should be in Egypt, and besought God to vouchsafe him the knowledge of his own name, and since he had heard and seen him, that he would also tell him his name, that when he offered sacrifice, he might invoke him by his name in his oblations. Whereupon God declared to him his holy name, which had never been revealed to men before, as Josephus interprets it, which is fine, concerning which it is not lawful for me to say any more. That's the words of Flavius Josephus. And in Wars of the Judeans, in Book 5, Josephus explains, writing in Greek, that the name Yahweh is spelled with four vowels, which would mean four Greek vowels, since he's writing in Greek, and he says that in Greek. But it's also actually spelled with four Hebrew letters that are consonant vowels, one of them repeated twice, so three different ones. Yod, hey, thou, or vav, hey. The y, the h, the v, and the h is how that's usually deciphered into English letters or Latin letters. And that's four vowels. It could be four vowels in Hebrew because they are consonant vowels. Sometimes they function as vowels. But it's definitely four vowels in Greek. And that would have to be something very close to Yahweh, or the Latin Yahweh, or Yahweh would be Jove, J-O-V-E. It's arguable that the Latin U was actually ever pronounced as a V, like we do in English, and say Jove. It was almost certainly in Latin, Yahweh, or Yahweh, or something similar. Maybe Yahweh. I would not be surprised. In fact, I would sort of bet on it. 
The banning of the name of Yahweh that Josephus mentions in Antiquities, Book 2, the prohibition of its use. Evidently, this may have happened sometime around the same time when Judea also became a multiracial political entity, so that inclusiveness and diversity would not be offended. But the scribes of the Dead Sea Scrolls, who abhorred the administration of the authorities in Jerusalem, they continued to use the Tetragrammaton even in their Greek manuscripts. There are Greek manuscripts which we should consider being a copy of the Septuagint among the Dead Sea Scrolls but where you would expect to read the word kurios in the Septuagint, you see the Tetragrammaton in the Paleo-Hebrew letters right in the Greek text of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They came to, they're writing in Greek, and they came to Yahweh, and they wrote... In the old Hebrew letters, Y-H-V-H. And it looks weird seeing that in a Greek manuscript, but there it is. There are only a few fragments of that, but it's very clear what those fragments are. Now returning to Compare. Since Yahweh so often commanded, that his people should know his name. And in the Old Testament, it was used 5,410 times. How could it have been so successfully concealed thereafter? For the answer to this, we must go back a bit. Genesis 3.15 gives the theme of the entire Bible. For there Yahweh says to Satan, I will put enmity between thee and a woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Satan's children, and I do mean real living people, not a mere figure of speech, have been fighting against Yahweh's people from that day to this. We have seen they have often tried to exterminate us by direct violence, and have always failed because Yahweh has come to our rescue. Then the crafty Satan has seen that his only hope of complete victory must come through another way. He must corrupt our religion until we become pagans or atheists, so we will not have the right to call upon Yahweh for help. Therefore, Satan has repeatedly resorted to the methods of infiltration and corruption of our centers of religion. And let me state that this actually started. A lot of people think that this corruption of the Christian religion is relatively recent. It's not recent at all. It was very incremental and very slow. It took a long time. But converso Jews started to poison Christianity with Jewish religion at least as early as the 12th century A.D. in Europe. 
But this really goes back to the second century AD in Alexandria. And I've made recent comparisons in some of my other work of the Christian religion of Alexandria to the Christian writings of Justin Martyr or Tertullian. And they differ drastically, even though, as I've recently shown from the Codex Alexandrinus, there is a book of odes from the 5th century, at least, in that manuscript, which definitely reflects Christian identity teachings. Tertullian and Justin Martyr taught that there was a race of devils among us, just as Jude and Peter and Paul and Yahshua Christ in the Gospel teach, that these were a race of devils that came from Satan and the fallen angels. We see that in the writings of Tertullian and Justin Martyr. We have that text and the citations posted at Christagenia, where Origen and Clement of Alexandria and the other writers that came out of the Alexandrian school of Christianity did not teach that. They taught that anybody could be a devil by their behavior. Now, any one of us disobedient to Yahweh at any particular time, even Peter in the Gospel, could be acting as a Satan and therefore labeled with the adjective Satan. But that doesn't make us that type of genetic Satan that the apostles and some of the other early Christian writers certainly described, who cannot be converted to Christ, who are not candidates for Christianity. So we see the corruption of Christianity in the early church fathers, elements of it. However, with the converso Jews of the medieval period, we have Jews writing some of the most prominent Bible commentaries of the Middle Ages. And as I've shown in my work on Martin Luther, Martin Luther himself followed them and was seriously affected by them, as were many of the other reformers. Continuing with Compare, remember when the kingdom was divided and Jeroboam set up the independent kingdom of Israel among the ten northern tribes, the nation quickly fell into pagan idolatry. 1 Kings chapter 12 verse 31 tells us that King Jeroboam made priests of the lowest of people, which were not the sons of Levi. Corruption of the religion into loathsome idolatry speedily followed as the natural corruption of the priesthood. Remember how evil the queen Jezebel brought in 450 priests of Baal who debased the land into the grossest idolatry until the courageous prophet Elijah killed them, as we read in 1 Kings chapter 18. In the southern kingdom of Judah, the same infiltration and corruption of the priesthood by the sons of Satan also led that nation into idolatry. 
Second Kings chapter 21 tells us how this wickedness came to such a climax under King Manasseh in Jerusalem, the son of Hezekiah, about 698 B.C., that it brought Yahweh's final decision to send the kingdom into the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah chapter 7 quotes Yahweh's indignant statement, Seeth thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven, Ishtar, and to pour out drink offerings unto the other gods, that they may provoke me to anger. That this was due to the infiltration of the children of Satan is clear. For Isaiah chapter 3 verse 9 says, The show of their countenance does witness against them, and they declare their sin is Sodom and hide it not. And actually, Jeremiah chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 16 also make this attestation and are much clearer that the sin in Jerusalem is due to race mixing with the Canaanites. All of the ancient monuments which picture Israelites, according to Compare, show a people with straight noses, a typical Anglo-Saxon face, and we would agree. If these evil leaders were Israelites, there would be nothing about their faces to identify them as wicked. They were identified by their big hooked noses as Canaanites, who were later called Jews. The show of their countenance does witness against them, as Isaiah says. These Canaanites had infiltrated into the priesthood and were corrupting the religion of the Israelites until they brought about the terrible Babylonian captivity. Indeed, both Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 7 show that this infiltration of the priesthood by these aliens was still going on after the return from Babylon. So Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 26 says, Among my people are found wicked men. They lay in wait as he that set snares. They set a trap. They catch men. Now, we are reaching the heart of the ancient conspiracy which took the name of Yahweh out of the Bible and concealed it from his people for 25 centuries. About a generation before the beginning of the Babylonian captivity, this infiltrated and corrupted priesthood started a new tradition that the name of Yahweh was too holy to be uttered. This idea had never been recognized before about 650 B.C. The name had been used in common speech, but of course with respect, usually. I must interject that I have no idea upon what basis Compre makes this claim, except perhaps for a few obscure statements in the Prophets. The people at an early time forgot the name of Yahweh for Baal, which Compare shall explain later. But the excuse that the name is, quote-unquote, too holy to be uttered, certainly seems to be a much later contrivance of the Jews. For instance, the Jews of the time of Josephus, where Josephus said it is no longer permissible to utter the name. That's the way he worded it. It indicates that Josephus remembered the time when it was permissible 
to utter the name. But we don't know if that time was actually during Josephus's lifetime or not. And it seems to have been from before his lifetime. And I'll explain why shortly. To the contrary, Yahweh attested throughout the prophets that the Israelites were profaning his name, which they could not profane unless they still used it. Compare continues in this error where he says, Archaeologists have discovered many ancient letters in the ruins of such cities as Lachish, which usually began with the formal salutation. May Yahweh cause my Lord to hear good tidings of good. (coughs) But about 650 B.C. these priests whose countenance was a witness against them, started this tradition that the name of Yahweh must never be used. In fact, they carried it to such an extreme that the Talmud commands that no one but the high priest can ever speak it, and he only in a whisper once a year. And and let me say that this actually does come from Flavius Josephus, who makes this same statement, But Josephus was not 650 B.C. Josephus was about 90 A.D. when he was writing that. That only the high priest could make this utterance of the name Yahweh once a year. Compare says, But the Old Testament scriptures contain the name 5,410 times. What could they do about this? If they made complete forgeries of the new manuscripts as they were written, there were always enough old manuscripts in existence to prove that the new ones had been altered. So they instructed the people that wherever they found the word Yahweh in the scriptures, they must not pronounce it as Yahweh. Whom should they say in its place, and why? And let me say that the Lachish Ostraca are from the period between the siege of Jerusalem under Hezekiah and its final fall, a hundred and fifteen or so years later. And the name Yahweh is represented down through the literature of the Temple of Zerubbabel and the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. Again, it seems not to have been forbidden until at least the second century B.C. So I would question Compare on, on this statement. Returning to uh, returning to Compare, Satan had already caused the pagans of all Western Asia to worship him under the name of Lord. Usually this was the Hebrew word Baal, meaning master or Lord. And we see Bel in the Celtic Isles was worshipped. And, and make no mistake about it. The bell of the Celts is the bell of the Hebrews, because those Celts were Phoenician Israelites. You know how many times in the Bible you find references to the pagan worship of Baal. If the hook-nosed priests had told the people to say Baal whenever they read Yahweh, the fraud would have been too transparent the people would have realized they were being led into idolatry and devil worship. They would not have accepted it. But the Hebrew has another word for master or lord. Compare transcribes it as Adon, I guess. I would say Adon. 
and derived from it is Adonai, meaning my lord. The corrupt priests could not have misled the people into saying Baal where they read Yahweh. But they accomplished the same result when they told the people that the name of God was so sacred that it must never be uttered, and instead the people should say, My Lord, or Adonai. The people did not notice that this was really just another way of saying Baal, so this custom was adopted. Now, Compare is operating under an assumption here in the difference between Adon and Baal, as while they both mean Lord, there is no doubt. He cannot establish his claims with actual historical evidence. Nevertheless, the word Adon is with all certainty the origin of both Adonis, the Greek word, and Odin, the Germanic word. But Adon was also used in a positive sense, such as in the 110th Psalm, where David is represented as having said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at, thy, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. There it should be, Yahweh said unto my Lord, which is the term Adon, a form of which is Adonai. Yahweh said unto my Adonai, or Yahweh said unto Adonai, my Lord. The fourth son of David was named Adonijah, or Adoniah, which means, my Lord is Yahweh. Continuing with Compare, and I think that's in 1 Samuel in the early chapters. Continuing with Compare, the ancient Hebrew language was written in a different alphabet than that which we know today. The old Hebrew, al- Hebrew alphabet is often called Phoenician, and that is true, because they were the same people. Upon the return from Babylon, they brought with them a new form of writing, using the same letters which are used today to write the Hebrew language. This second form of Hebrew was written, like some of the present-day shorthand systems, using only the consonant letters. Thus, for Los Angeles, you would only write L-S-N-G-L-S. And these consonant letters were written on the line from right to left. Eventually, they had to develop vowel letters also. And Compre is way off on this. He just is. Because consonants alone sometimes cause difficulty. For example, if you write only BT, do you mean bat, bet, beat, bit, boat, or butt? There was no room to insert the vowel letters on the line. So when the use of vowels began, they were written beneath the line. This was a handy device for the new tradition that you should never say Yahweh, but always substitute for it Adonai. The name Yahweh was, was written using the Hebrew letters which correspond to our English letters, Y-H-W-H, or Y-H-V-H. The corrupt Canaanite Jew priests caused the vowel letters of the word Adonai to be written under the line wherever Yahweh was written on the line, not to produce an altered form of Yahweh, but a reminder to whoever read the manuscript aloud to say Adonai instead of Yahweh. Now, Compare's explanation here seems rather confounded, 
and I'm being kind of nice. First, while it is unclear as to exactly when the square Hebrew alphabet was developed and replaced the original, apparently it was borrowed from Aramaic writers and existed before the 2nd century BC. Both alphabets appear among the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the original Hebrew characters did not have vowels as we know them, excepting the Aleph and the three other consonant vowels, which are He, Vav, and Yod. These are the three letters which make the Tetragrammaton. He, Vav, and Yod. Yod, He, Vav, He. Or Yod, He, Wal, He, if the Vav is interpreted as a U or a W instead of as a V. Contrary to what Compré said here, the earlier Masoretes did not develop vowels. Rather, they developed a pointing system of marks around letters that stand for vowels. According to Philip Schaff, a Lutheran Christian language scholar, the later Masoretes, those of perhaps the 12th or 13th century, began using Latin alphabet vowels with the Tetragrammaton to, re- to represent the word known to us as Jehovah. So Compare's close, and what he's about to say is not quite accurate, but it is probably close enough. It was well known up into the Middle Ages that where the letters Yahweh were written on the line and the vowel letters of Adonai were written beneath them. Now, we have learned that this didn't start until the 12th or 13th century. So, Compare's off on that. This did not indicate one word, but two, and it was a reminder to use one of them, Adonai, in place of the other. The mistake of trying to combine into one composite word was not made until the year 1520 AD, when a stupid and ignorant monk named Galatinus, or Galatinus, and this story is challenged, mistook this for one word and caused all the manuscripts copied in the monastery where he lived to be written with this as one word, Jehovah. This is not and never was the name of God, and of course it wasn't, but the practice, whether it came into being this way or otherwise, is quite unfortunate. In the modern English translations, Rotherham correctly uses the name Yahweh throughout the Old Testament. Smith and Goodspeed's American translation uses it in only a few places. But in the preface, the translators state they know the correct name to be Yahweh. In chapter 3 of the introduction to Mofat's translation, it shows that the author knew the name Yahweh was the true name, but thought that his work would be more popular if he didn't use it. And of course, the Christogenian New Testament uses Yahweh in place of Kyrios, where it stands for the God of the Old Testament, and even in place of Theos, or God, where it refers to Yahweh our God. Some people criticize me for that. They are fools. There's only one God for Christians, and that's Yahweh. And he is, of course, also Yahshua Christ. Compare says, the infiltrated and corrupted priesthood taught the people never to use the name of Yahweh in their worship, but always to say Adonai, which was just a synonym for Baal.
Once the people were led to say that they worshipped the Lord, it was not long until this became true in fact. Idolatry, with all its corruption, set in as most of the people neglected to worship at the temple. For those who did, the services degenerated into paganism. The nation was swiftly sliding into destruction because they worshipped the Lord Baal instead of the only true God, Yahweh. And the truth seems to be that medieval church officials were more interested in accommodating the Jews who despised the name of Yahweh. When the generic titles God and Lord are employed, the world is safe for ecumenism. Continuing with Compare, haven't you sometimes been puzzled by those many verses in which Yahweh says he will not allow the people to blaspheme his name? For example, Isaiah 52.5 where he says, My name continually every day is blasphemed. In Ezekiel 39.7 he says, I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. What name was he talking about? The fact is that the people were being taught to say that they worshipped the Lord, Adonai, which was only a synonym for Baal. Thus in Jeremiah 23, verses 26 and 27, Yahweh says, How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophecy lies? Yeah, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, which, ca- which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams which they tell every man to his neighbor, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. When the people said that Adnai was God, this was practically the same as if they had said that Baal was God. Thus the name of Yahweh was blasphemed by the people as he said. And, on the other hand, for that reason, because Yahweh's name was blasphemed, Yahweh, through his permissive will, allowed it to be removed from their lips. He removed it from their lips. But now we have it back. It's time to take it back and to appeal to Yahweh our God in repentance. Compare says, in the early translations, this change by the scribes was followed. Thus, in the Septuagint, which was a translation of the Old Testament in the Greek, made at Alexandria, Egypt, about the year 300 B.C., the translators did not reproduce either the original name Yahweh or the name with the vowel letters of Adonai written beneath it. And, of course, that practice wasn't in place for another 1,500 years. Compare's a little wrong about that. But they boldly substituted the Greek word for Lord, Curios. Jerome's translation into Latin, commonly called the Vulgate, took the Old Testament made from the Septuagint. So it did not use the name of God, but substituted the Latin word Dominus, meaning Lord. And the truth is that we don't know what the original Septuagint translators did. We just don't know. Because the oldest manuscripts that we have surviving of the of the Septuagint 
are the major codexes. The, the Codex Alexandrinus, the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Vaticanus, they're all copies of the Greek Old Testament, and also uh, New Testament, I'm sorry, and also of the Greek Old Testament. They're the earliest Septuagint manuscripts we have. Now, before them, we have fragments of Origen's Hexapla, and we have fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Greek manuscripts and I have seen the word Yahweh in Latin letters in the hexapla but not in Greek letters not that I've seen yet I haven't read much of the hexapla I've only used it to look up particular passages but I have seen Yahweh in Latin letters in Hexapla just not in Greek letters not yet anyway but I have seen Yahweh in the old Phoenician letters in the Greek letters of the Dead Sea Scrolls so we don't really know what the original Septuagint translators did back in 300 BC they may have written Curios they may not have we don't know not until we find some of the manuscripts which we've never had. So Compare probably shouldn't have taken that for granted that it was true. But Jerome, Jerome's translation into Latin, that was done in the early 5th century AD. That's almost, that, that's over 700 years after the Septuagint. So that's not, the two really aren't comparable, right? They're just not. They're not comparable. As we have said, among the Dead Sea Scrolls were Greek copies of scripture containing the Tetragrammaton, where we would see the Greek word kurios in our modern Septuagints. But Compre is certainly correct in his assessment that this change was wrong both in the Old and New Testaments. However, and I had promised to get to this before. Even though Josephus explains that he was prohibited from speaking the name, we see that prohibition is older than Josephus. The words of Christ are clear, that he told the apostles that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that you observe and do. But do not after their works, for they say and do not. So we find no early instances of Greek New Testament manuscripts using the Tetragrammaton. Apparently the apostles used the Greek term kurios. However, we are not under the scribes and the Pharisees any longer. So we do not need to do what they say. Again, continuing with Compare. However, the word, I'm sorry, in fact, Jeremiah denounced it so hotly, the practice of changing Yahweh's name. Jeremiah denounced it so hotly, I think the translators garbled it deliberately. In the King James Bible, read Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8, and he quotes it. How can you say we are wise and the law of Yahweh is with us? Lo, certainly in vain made he it, 
the pen of the scribes is in vain. And, and that reading in Jeremiah actually implies that Yahweh had purposely corrupted the scriptures, which of course would be blasphemy. Compare says, as thus mistranslated, this is the silliest thing ever put into print. If it means anything at all, it must mean that Yahweh made his laws in vain. Poor weak Yahweh just couldn't make it stick. You know Yahweh didn't inspire anything so silly. Correctly translated from the Hebrew, it reads thus, Jeremiah 8.8 How can you say we are wise and the law of Yahweh is with us? When lo, the lying pen of the scribes has turned it into a lie. You will find this correct translation in Rotherham, Moffat, Smith and Goodspeed, Young's literal translation, and even in the Septuagint. And yes, it is in the Septuagint. It is correct. But it was too hot for the translators of the King James Bible. Truly, as Isaiah 43.27 says, Thine interpreters had transgressed against me. If you are still wondering what difference does it make, the difference is that Satan was defined by the pagans as the Lord. In Hebrew, usually the word Baal. Now think it over. When you repeat the words of the 23rd Psalm, do you really say, Baal is my shepherd and I shall not want? Or the 27th Psalm, Baal is my light and my salvation? Yet this is what the lying pen of the scribes has caused you to do. Yes, Yahweh has been patient with you because he can read your most secret thoughts and he knows your intentions are good. You didn't know the Bible you have in your library had been tampered by with the <laughs> had been tampered with by these hook-nosed priests of Satan. Yahweh knows that you really believe in and worship him even when you are making the mistake of using the word Lord the English equivalent of Baal. We are getting very close to the end of this age in which no such mistakes can be made or can be tolerated. Only the willfully blind can fail to see the signs of the times. Crises are developing both internationally and within the nations. A situation which is plainly leading up to such catastrophes that, as our Redeemer said in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13, except those days should be shortened, there shall not be any flesh saved. We have already reached the time when we should make every, every effort to live according to the will of Yahweh. There are scriptures which surely speak expressly to our own time on this subject. Consider Hosea chapter 2 verse 16 And it shall be at that day, saith Yahweh, that thou shalt call me Ishi, which means my husband, and shalt no more call me Baal, which is my Lord. Sooner or later we must face the fact that we have been using the name or title of a pagan god which is really Satan. This must be cleansed that we may worship Yahweh in his own true name. This is what he is speaking of in Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 7 where he says, So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. 
and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more, because he had taken it out of our mouths. And the heathen shall know that I am Yahweh, or the nations, the nations of the children of Israel, shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. In the early times, Compare says, his people Israel did know his name and used it in their worship. Then came the corruption by the lying pen of the scribes, which suppressed the use of his name and finally even the knowledge of it, and substituted the Lord. This cannot continue forever, for Yahweh says, So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more. With this understanding, we can see how important this Christian Israel identity message truly is. This is the message of Elijah who was to come, which is to turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Yahweh is our God and our heritage and he is the eternal enemy of the satanic Jews and all of their non-white cousins. Those other branches on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Thus Compare concludes, Don't you think it's time we began this reform? The reform which he spoke of in quoting Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 7. Don't you think it is time we began this reform? Micah chapter 6 verse 9 says, Yahweh's voice cries to the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. If we are to be men of wisdom, it is time that we change. Even with good intentions in its use, Lord is not the name of an individual, but a title like the word governor. If you needed the help of the governor of your own state, wouldn't it make a great difference which governor you appeal to? The whole book of the prophet Joel deals with tremendous events which close this end time. It is the day of Yahweh, when our God comes to put an end to the wicked and all their customs and institutions. There will be no more Kwanzaa. We know from the writings of the other prophets who deal with this, the next world war is the beginning of this final conflict between good and evil, between Yahweh and Satan. There will be no more Chinese New Year. No more Cinco de Mayo. We know how terrible this universal war will be and how desperately we will need Yahweh's help to survive it. Joel chapter 2 verse 32 tells us, in that day it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be delivered. Hadn't you better start forming new habits of speech, learning to know and use the correct name of God? You don't want to find yourself under the terrible strain and excitement of those days, saying, Baal, help me. Yahweh has told us what his name is, and no translation into another language can change that. In this end of the age, there is no longer time to have any doubt as to who your God is. We still face the question put by Elijah to the people of Israel. 
How long hold you between two opinions? If Yahweh be God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Or as Joshua told the people, Choose you this day whom you will serve. But for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Compare concludes, Let us also boldly say, As for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. For his conclusions and his conviction, we can love Bertrand Compare, while at the same time, we must refine and correct his message and any errors which he may have made. As for his eschatology, we may have also thought in his day that the last great war was imminent. But now we believe that it was, but now we believe that it was already being fought. And we pray to see the end of it soon because it's still being fought. When our people awaken to the fact that they are already destroyed, already surrounded, already stripped bare and naked, and pray to Yahweh their God for his salvation. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the eternal enemy of the Jews. And thank you for listening.